Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I am Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against the odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. Then we bring you a special selection of these stories here on the podcast. I am joined once again by DLS co-founder Florian Dijsens, who I just saw at our first live show of the year in Berlin. Hello. Hello, Susan. It was magical to be back. Uh, we were, in fact, back at the studio, which is downstairs, which is more of a bar vibe uh, at Akud, where we uh, where we just felt a little bit like disco queens, um, and <laughs> which is always nice. And our audience uh, was into it. We had a little giveaway. Uh, we went outside. We had some beverages in the in the like late, late sunshine. It was it was lovely. It was, in fact, very fabulous. And in this episode, we have a fabulous story for you of a Deutsche Diva, an iconic German actress and singer and eventually best-selling author known for her glamour and scandal, her smoky voice, and sweeping false eyelashes. Hildegard Knief was also an unreliable narrator and a serial fabulator who was alternately loved and hated in her homeland. Luckily, we have a reliable narrator to tell her story. We do. It's our own wonderful Dead Lady Show co-founder, Katie Darbyshire, an award-winning translator who was recently on the long list for the Booker International Literature Prize for her translation of Clemens Maya's book, While We Were Dreaming, out with Fitzgeraldo. In fact, just like a previous one that they did, which was also long-listed for this very same prize. Katie is a champion not just of German literature, but today on this very podcast of German That Ladies. Here she is, Katie Darbyshire, on stage at Berlin's Akut. I am indeed. I'm talking about Hildegard Kniff, who was uh, a woman with at least three, if not four, careers, acting, music, and writing, followed by uh, Twilight Years as a celebrity diva. If you haven't heard of her, that's because she was mostly famous in Germany and the Netherlands. Um, I first thought about sharing her story after talking about her with a, a random German transvestite slash secret service agent. Um, the short version is, it was at a bar. So this drag queen was seriously into Hilda, as she's known affectionately here in Berlin, which is no surprise, really, uh, as a, a professional diva Hildegard Knief was always popular with the transvestite scene and, and was guest of honor at Berlin's Drag Ball way back in 1979. Uh, I also already had her, one of her books, uh, The Gift Horse, Report on a Life. What I'm showing you here is uh, not only the cover with her face on it, um, but uh, also the front page of the award-winning translation into English by her second husband. As we dead ladies presenters know, autobiographies are often tricky, and most of Kniff's biographers have acknowledged this is not exactly the truth and nothing but the truth. But some of the untruths she wrote in this book, she repeated and exaggerated off the page too. She was constantly reinventing herself and, and adjusting the narrative to fit. This book has a lot to answer for. The biopic, which was made fairly recently, and the English Wikipedia article basically swallow it whole. But let's hear a little taste of her telling her own story in some lyrics she wrote herself, translated into English again by her husband. 
I came to the world on a cold winter's day. Sneezed three times, it must have been hate. My father was livid, he wanted a son. I took a look round and said to the nun, From here on it gets rough. That was uh, From Here On It Gets Rough. Uh, the German title is Von nun an geht's bergab. I've taken it from a compilation of the best of her English recordings. But she also did a few songs in French and gazillions in German. In the 60s and 70s, she sold more than three million records. She made 20 albums, countless EPs and singles. And of course, before, during and after her, her music career, she was acting and IMDb lists 90 appearances as an actress and 163 <laughs> as herself. <laughs> we go back to the beginning. She was born in 1925 in Ulm in the south of Germany, where her parents were, were trying to start a business. Her father sadly died six months later, probably of the after effects of syphilis contracted during World War I. Ida later said she was fadersüchtig, a dadaholic, and she did indeed have many close friendships or romantic relationships with significantly older men. Her mother returned to live with her own parents in Berlin, who looked after Hilda. You can see them here, Hilda, uh, the center of attention, holding on to her grandfather's tie while standing on the swing. Um, she would spend idyllic summers with her beloved grandfather outside the city. She said he was from an aristocratic background, but his father had gambled it all away and he moved to Berlin. This grandfather committed suicide in July 1945, which was very upsetting for her. She said he was against the Nazis, which is fairly credible, so that wasn't why he, he committed suicide at that point. The family home, until her mother remarried, was a small flat. Any Schönebergers here in the audience? Yes. <laughs> uh, at number 33, Seedanstraße, which is now Leberstraße. Uh, you can see the house is not particularly glamorous even now, uh, but it does have uh, this plaque honoring her and uh, with titles of her songs and stuff. Does anybody know who else grew up in Seedanstraße, number 65? Here it is, Marlene Dietrich. She gets her own plaque too, um, just down the road, obviously not at the same time. The two of them met during Hilda's very first stay in Hollywood in 1948. They got on really well, because they came from the same background. Uh, Marlene, unfortunately, introduced uh, Hildegard Kneef to, to two bad things. First of all, prescription meds, which she would just hand out like in a basket to her friend, and later sent through the post. And second of all, her, her celebrity astrologer, who, who Hilda consulted for many, many years about all major and some minor decisions, wedding dates, job offers, and health matters. This is the same guy who, who advised the Reagans when they were in the White House still. Did you remember that? Yes. A very good groan. So, as you can see from these two pictures, Marlene supported Hildegard with, with publicity, uh, often you know, showing herself with her in public, and um, uh, with very honest advice, until the two of them fell out over Hilda's uncomplimentary 1982 biography of their fellow German actress, 
Tommy Schneider, which the, isn't, isn't a lovely dead lady triumvirate? Marlene, Hilde, and Romy. Anyway, Hilde grows up in Berlin. Uh, she was seven when the Nazis came to power. She leaves school at 16 to start an apprenticeship as a, a cartoon artist at the Ufa Film Studios, but quickly decides that drawing the same thing over and over again is a bit dull. So she uses the access that she has to the, the film studio canteen to talk her way into an acting apprenticeship. Now, her, her application had to pass Goebbels' desk because he was in control of all aspects of the arts under the Nazis. He approved her screen tests but said she needed a nose job. Look at this photo. Does this gorgeous teenager need a nose job? No. And she didn't get a nose job for several decades. <laughs> Speaking of Goebbels, here he is in a 1938 film premiere, attended mainly by men, apparently. Uh, and that the back right... Let me see if I can work this little... Ooh, that guy there was his pal, Ewald von Diemandowski, who, who later was made the boss at Nazi Germany's second biggest uh, film company, Torbis. So during the war, Hildegard Kniff's mother was evacuated with her younger half-brother, and Hilda was determined to make it in Berlin, essentially without parental supervision. She was bombed out twice in a row and struggling to find housing. So after she had a, a couple of other older lovers... She, when she was 19, she moved in with this guy, Dimandowski. Conveniently, his wife and children had also been evacuated. So, <laughs> Apparently, she got on with his mother. So I'm showing you some, some shots from the biopic from 2009, Hilda, of Anian Soina as Dimandowski and Heike Makac as Hilda. I can't really recommend it. <laughs> mainly because the movie was adapted verbatim almost from, from The Gift Horse. And it, it shows Hilda dressing as a boy to fight alongside her Nazi lover in the Battle of Berlin. Eventually they desert and they're separated by Polish soldiers. Hilda is taken to a, a prisoner of war camp where she reveals her secret to a doctor. She, she also claimed she'd been in uh, this Soviet camp for three months. Her biographer, Jürgen Trimborn, concluded this was highly unlikely. Um, she probably didn't join in the defense of Berlin because she never mentioned it in the 50s. But the couple probably did decide to escape Berlin at the end of April, bearing in mind the war ended on the 8th of May. It is quite credible that she feared violence and rape by Soviet soldiers, so she may well have disguised herself as a man. There's a letter to her mother that she wrote in September 45 that also gives us some pretty big clues. So they probably did join a group of Wehrmacht soldiers heading northwest towards the Americans away from the Red Army. Probably were app apprehended by Polish soldiers. But Hilda was released immediately on arrival at this Red Army camp. She wrote, traipsed merrily back to Berlin in two days. And uh, she was, in fact, back in time to start work in the third week of May. So no, no three months in the camp. Interestingly, she then registered at Diemandowski's villa in June 1945. In Germany, you have to tell the authorities where you live at all times, still. Um, and uh, even more interestingly, Diemandowski was arrested in November 1945 by American military police 
hiding in either his own or the next-door neighbor's cellar. Who knows whether they saw each other during that time. <laughs> so I, I just flummoxed, why on earth would anyone make this story up? And, and my, my personal opinion is that, that she desperately wanted to be liked. She was writing this in the, the book in the late 60s when West Germany was only just beginning to face up to the Nazis' crimes. A German friend who was born in 1948 told me that her parents and all of their friends hated Hildegard Knief. They saw her as a traitor for speaking badly of Hitler, uh, for leaving for the USA and taking American, American citizenship and then making scandalous films, as we'll hear later. I think that Hilda wanted to appear more loyal to Germany than people thought she had been. But, of course, it's a, a tricky situation because you don't want other people to think you were full-on Nazi, really. Um, and it did have effects on her career. The Cold War was in full flow, and uh, she probably drew on testimonies of, of real events in Soviet POW camps to write her account. Anyway, so she's back in Berlin, and she starts getting acting work in theatres. Unlike all the other actors starting back, she'd never been on screen under the Nazis, so she was a fresh face. And she was cast in the first post-war film, Murderers Among Us, Die Mörder sind unter uns, um, which was made in the Soviet zone in 1946. It, it's remarkable for the, the backdrop of, of devastated Berlin, but it's a bizarre waste of her acting, which is already not bad. The plot completely sidesteps her character's past in a concentration camp and just focuses on this uh, good German doctor uh, and his guilt and rage against a former army comrade who'd ordered a massacre during the war. Hilda's pure love saves him and he doesn't shoot the nasty, the nasty, the Nazi bastard. <laughs> so you'll see on the poster here uh, that uh, this completely unknown actress got top billing. That's because her male co-star had lied about his Nazi past. <laughs> they didn't want him on the poster. So the movie made her a star. She was photographed for Life magazine in 1947, and she also appeared in the first films made in the, both the American and the British occupation zones. By now she was with uh, an American soldier, Kurt Hirsch, who probably gave her that fancy fur coat you can see in the photo. Um, he was a US film officer, which meant he granted or refused permission for all cultural events in the American-occupied zone. And despite what she says in her biography, she uh, may well have met him when she needed papers to work in the theater in the American sector. He was Jewish. He grew up speaking German and Czech in Prague and emigrated to New York with his parents in 1939. Uh, he lost 16 relatives in the Holocaust. He and his friend, the actor Willy Tremper, wrote in his later autobiography, only a 19-year-old had the right back then to love a Nazi in the spring and a Jewish film officer by autumn. <laughs> so as you can see in the photo, she's really getting her first taste of, of relative luxury here, uh, browsing the black market with her furs and fancy handbag, nice gloves... Uh, and she really never lost the taste for it. Um, so she marries Kurt Hirsch and accepts a contract from a Hollywood producer. 
When she gets there, though, it turns out the studio will pay her a monthly wage to earn English and film screen tests, but it, it doesn't put her in any movies. German actors and accents, as we heard at the beginning, uh, weren't exactly popular in Hollywood in 1948. But she did, she did meet many exiled German writers, actors, and intellectuals in Los Angeles, and of course, Marlene, who became important mentors for her. And I, I like to think that those first three years in Hollywood were a kind of anti-fascist education for her. She also learned the art of putting on a show for the press, something she never forgot. She took US citizenship in 1950. Somebody's met her in the audience. Those laughs are particularly bitter. Um, <laughs> she took US citizenship in 1950 and adopted the stage name Hildegard Neff, N-E-F-F, uh, in the States. Enraging Germans, as we heard. But with no work coming up and, and fearing the gossip about her old Nazi lover would spread to the States, she started looking for roles in Germany and took pretty much the first one that came up. Here we see the poster and a shot from The Sinner, great title, in which Hilda plays a, a prostitute with an interesting backstory whose love once again saves a good man, this time an artist. You see, she's magnificently sexy in all the way through the film. We watched it, it was good. Ish, ish. Uh, it's not quite clear to me why she did this nude scene in 1951. You can see her uh, posing in the garden for the, as an artist model. You can get about a second and a half in the film. Could have been because she was having an affair with the director. Anyway, as a big no-no, the Catholic Church was not happy. Um, uh, didn't, it, she was just too sexy for Germany. <laughs> it didn't help that both characters commit suicide at the end. So, oops, spoilers. Anyway, um, so there were riots outside cinemas, which, of course, made everyone want to see it, and it was a major commercial success. She followed it up with, with more movies uh, where she played women who used their bodies for success or survival and more affairs with married directors and actors. Her marriage failed at some point. Uh, at last, though, she got offers from Hollywood. So she plays opposite uh, Tyrone Powers and Gregory Peck. And she gets to sign the concrete outside Grandma's Chinese Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard. Very exciting for her. She was the first German to do so after 1945. She made one more movie in the States, but the studio bosses dropped her probably after too many affairs with her co-stars, who were married. She moves back to Europe and makes movies there instead. So she was still wildly successful, as you can see from these uh, very glamorous 50s magazine covers all over Europe. Um, but she wasn't cast in particularly good films. She plays temptresses. So there's a hypnotized singer, a sexy circus artiste, an accidental bigamist. <laughs> and the perfect result of an artificial insemination of a prostitute with a murderous semen. <laughs> it's Florian's favorite. Eventually, she was offered a Cole Porter musical on Broadway, Silk Stockings, where she was taught to sing, standing her in good stead which was a huge success, but very exhausting. She played 675 shows in a row, 
before taking her first break in years back in Europe. After that, her career kind of starts to wane and starts accepting roles in TV shows. But in 1959, this handsome fellow is her co-star. <laughs> I agree. Uh, this is the actor David Cameron, not the one with the pig. Uh, his name was actually David Palastanga. He came from the East End of London. He had an Italian Greek dad and a Scottish mum. So she does the best seduction ever. So it's the last day of filming. She's been ignoring him the whole time. And then she invites him to a party at her place. And surprise, he's the only guest. <laughs> and she plays her Frank Sinatra records. Unfortunately, he's also married. Um... <laughs> Never mind, he still moves to Germany to be with her. They were together for 17 years, with many ups and downs, um, and rarely apart during that time. He essentially managed her career, translated her work, took care of her money, and you can see them here in a, a very fancy airport setting. He's carrying her valise. She only has to hold her flowers. He also put up with her increasingly appalling behaviour, uh, she was horribly jealous and, and treated him very badly indeed. So, in the 60s, her music career soared. She does kind of torch songs and jazzy numbers, musical numbers, Cole Porter, Bertolt Brecht, and then she starts writing her own lyrics. She was hugely popular on record and live, but she had crippling stage fright, which never got better. It was always a, a horrible battle. I'm going to show you her two top hits on one single from 1968. Für mich soll es rote Rosen regnen and von nun an ging's bergab, which is what we heard at the beginning. I don't know if anyone remembers Angela Merkel's last day on the job. <laughs> when she's like, she gets a military band and they give her three requests and, and one of the songs that uh, they played for her was this one. Für mich soll es rote Rosen regnen. It's a very rousing uh, tune. You can see her tearing up. Uh, it's also very popular with drag queens. <laughs> 1968, a good year all round. Little baby Christina was born and, and glues the marriage together for a little while. After a difficult birth and recovery, Hida decides to write because she's talented. She can do it. Uh, she has a literary agent who negotiates a book advance and coupled with a fee for excerpts in a magazine, totaling 630,000 Deutschmarks up front. <laughs> All the writers in the audience go, I get that, yeah. <laughs> so the gift horse was published in autumn 1970. It was selling up to 4,000 copies a day in Germany. Altogether, one million hardcovers, 900,000 book club editions, 600,000 in paperback. It's actually very well written. I really enjoyed it. Um, the, well, I didn't read it all. It, and, but her humor, intelligence, and, and character really shined through. So she was addressing this post-war period openly... Uh, for the first time in, well, for the first time that was widely read in Germany, and the book caused a lot of discussion. 
was translated into 17 languages. Here she is at a book signing in Amsterdam. It's actually, I think it's a later book, but uh, never mind. You, I like it because you can see she's thronged with less glamorous people than herself, <laughs> buying and, and surrounded by books with her photo on the cover. And photographers is great. Uh, she toured the States in 1971 with her husband, uh, and there's, if you're interested, there's a really fascinating interview she did on the radio with um, Studs Terkel that you can listen to online. It's an hour long, worth it, especially when you know the truth. <laughs> so the family is now fantastically rich, as you can see from this photo of them in a, a like a fur-lined sleigh, wearing fur coats and hats. Um, they lead a life of luxury in multiple homes and hotels. They moved out of Germany because who wants to pay tax? Uh, but they couldn't hold on to money. They should have just given it to the tax man. And through various illnesses and operations, Hilda ends up getting addicted to methadone and later plain old morphine and becomes increasingly erratic and paranoid and, and nasty, <laughs> and eventually the marriage breaks down. She soon finds a new husband, though, Paul von Schell, uh, who's happy to look after her around the clock. She makes more films, writes more books, does more tours, despite repeatedly saying that she'd never do any of those things again. <laughs> but it's ever less successful. She bankrupts a couple of publishers and tour managers with her huge demands, and she's still plagued by addictions and health issues. She starts to grow bitter and despise the press, but of course she's dependent on the press. At one point she says she hates the Germans, and of course she denies ever saying it. The upshot is that she moves to L.A. with uh, Paul and Christina, and they just about survive on fame and loans and, ironically enough, press exclusives like these uh, two 1980s uh, home stories with them looking wealthy and happy. Uh, after 1989, she and Paul move back to Germany and, and she lives out a kind of modest dotage, enjoys a lot of attention as a, as a diva, Germany's only diva, they say, uh, but nowhere near her former riches and glory. She was a very popular chat show host if you watch them, there's a lot of them on YouTube. It's fascinating. She does seem to have actually believed the stories that she was telling about her life. Uh, she uh, was always immaculately turned out. I'm standing in front of them. Just move out of the side. Can you see that lovely out? No. no. I'm going to move a, a long way so you can see the pink frou-frou. Is it, it is not a surprise that drag queens love her, exactly. Uh, so despite the, the relative financial hardship, relative, uh, she actually has some things now that she, she'd always desperately wanted, and that's a very devoted partner and popularity in Germany. Here she is again, thronged by uh, autograph hunters. Um, she collects awards and accolades. Some of them she just makes up. Uh, she finally kicks the drugs and the cigarettes after many, many years. She lives an okay life. She likes being taken out to dinner, 
they read, they watch late night TV with a glass of red wine. And she puts on makeup every day until she dies in 2002 at the age of 76. I think not always the uh, fake eyelashes. Although she used to um, spend empty moments, she would like peel the glue off and roll them around a pencil to get them back into shape. So this isn't the Katie's Feelings show, but, but I was kind of angry with, with Hildegard Kneef for her dishonesty and for the unpleasant person that, that ambition, money and addiction made her. So what I did was I asked German friends how they feel about her. And I got this quite overwhelming response. People of all ages, genders and sexualities told me how much they admired her. Maybe because they didn't know the small print, but they admired her for her beauty and style, her acting as a diva, as a musician who always moved with the times, and particularly as an, an independent woman who, who broke taboos in, in post-war West Germany. So that's how I will try to remember her. And, of course, for her eyelashes, which were so amazing that they inspired their own adjective, kniefig. Thank you very much. Katie Derbyshire on Hildegard Knief, recorded live from the stage in Berlin's Akud, with assistance from Thomas Beckmann and Johannes Braun. Thanks for that. By the way, if you heard a weird little digital noise, a, do, 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 a bleep or two during Katie's talk, that's actually what happens when you don't turn your mobile phone off or put it on airplane mode when you're at an event that's being taped. So even if it doesn't ring, it does sometimes make an impact on the recording. Please don't be a bleeping pain in my ears. Do help us out and other event hosts by taming your phone. You can go see pictures of Hildegard Knef and her truly impressive Trixie Mattel rivaling eyelashes and have listened to some of her music, watch some clips from her movies over at deadladyshow.com slash podcast. Uh, you'll just love it, I'm sure. Now, if you love us, you don't have to wear your heart on your sleeve, but you can wear our logo on your chest or your tote bag or coffee mug thanks to our new tea Public Shop. We will add a link for you in the episode notes so you can check them out. You know where else you can get some logo stuff? Over on Patreon. As a $2 or €2 Euro supporter, you get access to selected exclusive content we create for our Dead Lady Book Club on Patreon, as well as those logo stickers sent just to you. And at $5 or €5, Euro or insert your currency here level, you will receive access to all of our exclusive audio content. And there's something new every month. And we'll send you a lovely Dead Lady Show badge in the posts. At the highest level, $10 of your favorite currency units. You get all of our exclusive content, a sticker and a badge, and a free book of your choice from our curated selection. Find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. And thank you so much to all of you who already support us on Patreon. It's just really lovely to have you there. And thanks to everyone who comes to our shows in Berlin and New York and who follow us on social media via at Show, where we post all our updates and information as well as fun pics. We'll be back again next month with another episode on another fabulous dead lady. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dyersons and Katie Derbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Our theme tune is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. See you next time. Bye.